Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 19. This is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry, for this saying was displeasing him, or this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib, I will give her to you as wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So Saul is on his way down. David is on his way up. And uh, we see that, that the, repeatedly in this passage that it's said that David is, uh, the Lord is with David. And Saul, again, is afflicted by that evil spirit from God. We've talked about that before and what that means. And the prophet Samuel has already announced that the kingdom has been taken from Saul. And also remember that, he, that Samuel has also 
uh, anointed David as king of Israel. All of this has already taken place. Uh, The Lord is departing from Saul. The Spirit is coming upon David, just like those judges of earlier. Uh, Saul hides, David fights. Saul, Saul diminishes, David increases. And in doing so, David shows that he desires for God's name to be honored. That is what he is concerned about. He is not concerned for his own name. He wants the name of God to be honored. He is truly a man after God's own heart. God desires that his name might be honored and praised in all the world. And and David has that as his ambition. Now, enter into this scene, um, Jonathan. And we, last time, when was the last time we saw Jonathan? It's been... Uh, a bit of time. Uh, you remember when Samuel put the army of Israel under an oath, right? That uh, they could not eat anything before evening, and Jonathan, Jonathan ate some honey and so broke the oath of his father. And then his father found out about it, and his father was going to kill him. And who interceded for Jonathan? It was the people. The people of Israel interceded for Jonathan with Saul, and Saul did not end up putting Jonathan to death. But remember what Jonathan says at that time. Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. That's Jonathan's assessment of the, the work of his father. But the people intercede with for him and prevail, and... Again, we could see that as the people's rejection of Saul. Saul put them under an oath. Saul was going to kill Jonathan. The people say no, and their voice is stronger than than Saul's authority. So in a sense, the people have rejected Saul as king in that. But we come to this passage, these these few verses here that um, are very controversial and have been misused in scandalous ways in modern times. The relationship between David and Jonathan. It, the first four verses here describe, describe a friendship. Okay, It describes a friendship between two men, but also it goes beyond that to describe a transfer of power between the king's son and the anointed king, the prince who would have followed in his father's uh, footsteps if he had, you know, Jonathan was the, the prince. He would have ascended to power had, had David not been um, brought in and anointed by Samuel. And so we see this transfer of power taking place also in this, this acknowledgement by Jonathan that David is the king. But but first of all is, is just the, the, um, the strength of the description of this relationship that they had, their friendship. The fact that we cannot read, read this passage today and not think of homosexuality is a product of this generation's perversity. It's a product of the perversity that we have grown accustomed to in this time. We read this and we're like, whoa, you know, that's, that's, a little, that's a little strange. You know, the ungirding of clothes and loving, loving a brother as himself. 
Is that not how the relationship between a man and a wife is described in Scripture? Evangelical advocates of homosexuality have pushed this reading of this passage. This is one of the main texts used to support homosexual relationships. Um, seeing David and Jonathan as the paradigm for homosexual relationships. Um, that has been pushed um, very much uh, recently. But this is what friendship between men, devoid of any sexual component, used to be like. This is what friendship between men used to be like. Their souls were knit together. They loved one another as themselves. They made a covenant. They exchanged gifts. They, they honored one another's uh, position. I want to read from you. This is, this is something I've probably shared with you before. You'll get sick of me sharing the, the five things that have, I've read that have impacted me. Um, over the years, there are about five things that have really impacted me. You're just going to hear them again and again. That Chesterton quote about uh, mothers, um, this is one of them. This is a, uh, an article by Anthony Esselin called A Requiem for Friendship. And I just want to read a part of this because it's going to help you understand um, this passage. He says, Sam Gamgee, 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 what do they say in the movie? And I'll do the opposite. Gamgee? Yeah. Sam Gamgee, that's how I'm going to say it, has been fool enough to follow his beloved master Frodo into mortar, the realm of death. To rescue Frodo from the orcs who have taken him captive and who will slay him as soon as he ceases to be of use in finding the ring, Sam has fought the monstrous spider Shelob has eluded the pursuit of the orcs and has dispatched a few of them to their merited deaths. Finally, he finds Frodo in the upper room of a small, filthy cell, naked, half-conscious, lying in a heap in a corner. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, my dear, he cries. It's Sam, I've come. With a bluff tenderness, he clasps him to his breast, assuring him that it is really he, Sam, in the flesh. Still groggy, Frodo can hardly believe it, but he clutches at his friend. It seems to him all the tissue of a dream that an orc with a whip has turned into Sam. And it is all mixed up with the sound of singing that he thought he heard and tried to answer. That was me singing, says Sam, shaking his head and saying that he had all but given up hope of ever finding his friend again. He cradles Frodo's head as one would comfort a troubled child. At that, a snigger arises from the audience in the theater. What? Are they gay? An ignorant but inevitable response. Shakespeare or his narrative persona expressed in his sonnets a passionate love for an unnamed and not too loyal young man. So Shakespeare must have been homosexual. Despite the absence of evidence and despite his persona's explicit statement in Sonnet 20 that the young man's sexual accoutrements are of no interest or use to him whatsoever. The bachelor, Abe Lincoln, long shared a bed with his closest friend, Joshua Speed, and later wrote letters expressing, with what seemed a touch of self-deprecating irony, his fear that he would be lonely once Speed had taken a wife. Lincoln, therefore, must have been homosexual. 
No matter that men and women too commonly shared beds and also commonly spoke of their friendship in strong, earthy language that now embarrasses. The poet Edmund Spencer, celebrator of his own wedding in one of the most brilliant poems in English, used to share a bed with his friend and fellow scholar at Cambridge, Gabriel Harvey. There you go. Your love to me was finer than the love of women, laments David in a public song when he learns of the death of his friend, Jonathan. And we know why. And then later in the article, he writes this. Friendship and the signs upon which it must subsist are in a bad way. I will focus on the friendships of men since that is what I know about. Many comparable things might be said about the friendships of women. We still have the word friendship and we still have something of the reality, but it is distant, dilute, and bloodless. For modern American men, friendship is no longer forged in the heat of battle or in the dust of the plains as they drive their herds across half a continent or in the choking air of a coal mine or even in the cigar smoke of a debating club. That is partly because our lives, for better and for worse, no longer involve the risk and the sweat that was the cement of deep friendship. No man will help hew the oaks for our cabin because we no longer live in cabins. No man will stand by as we jump overboard to set the trawling net because we have no boat and set no net. We live too comfortably for that. Under such fortunate circumstances, we need all the more the camaraderie and intellectual risk of the club. But gentlemen's clubs have vanished or have been sued out of existence. More than ever do men need to come together to eat and drink and argue and think because more than ever their work separates them from each other. But now they are virtually forbidden to do so. It is but more of the devastation wrought by the sexual revolution. That we fail to see it as such is no surprise. Naturally, when we think of that recrudescence of paganism, we think first of its damage to the family and to relations between men and women. We think of divorce, pornography, unwed motherhood, abortion, suicidally falling birth rates. But the sexual revolution has also nearly killed male friendship as devoted to anything beyond drinking and watching sports. And the homosexual movement, a logically inevitable result of 40 years of heterosexual promiscuity and feminist folly, bids fair to finish it off and nail the coffin shut. What is more, those who will suffer most from this movement are precisely those whom our society, stupidly considering them little more than pest adults, has ignored. I mean boys. Boys will suffer. Now I read that, and if you're, if you're a man my age, um, you, you have a sense of this. You feel this. Um, I have had very few close male relationships. And the reason for that is partially this, this um, unwillingness for men to be thought of as homosexuality. There's, a, there's an honest revulsion to it that any man is going to have. And any closeness in male relationships is now tainted by the cultural pressure on those things. And so men, men don't have friendships like they used to have. 
Um, women's relationships are, are affected, I think, to a less extent um, by the um, homosexual movement, but um, certainly men's relationships. And so when we come to a passage like this with Jonathan and David, you know, we get uncomfortable. We read it like, um, whoa, what are these guys doing? When, when there's, there's no suggestion of that in the text at all. David knew the law of God and knew that the law of God said that if a man lies with a man, it's an abomination. Right? Jonathan knew that. Right? He, they, they were faithful Israelites, and so they knew that, and so let's keep this in the context of that, right, of the Scriptures. But, you know, we, again, we think that this passage says something about the sexual preferences of Jonathan and David rather than their friendship, right? And that has to do with how our society is sexualizing that which shouldn't be sexualized. Everything today is sexualized. Um, there's a strange thing about men. They would rather be in war if they can have friendships than be in peace and quiet if the only companionship is that of women. I really think that's true. That may offend the women who are here, but a man would, would go to war just to have camaraderie with men. He would go through uh, painful exercises. And, and, you know, there are many reasons for that. Um, you know, the way, the way I think about it is, is this. Does your husband die when you go on vacations? Is there a part of your husband that dies when you go on vacations? Yes? Yeah, I see a few heads nodding. My wife is, is nodding. I just, I go into spiritual like death. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know how to spend my time. Part of that is just me not being a good father. I totally admit that. It's me not, not engaging with my children. But another part of it is men's identity is wrapped up in the work they do and in the camaraderie of work and, and being productive in that sense. Okay, and so... Um, so, although I didn't die in sabbatical, that, that was warfare, actually. My sabbatical was warfare, and, um, and so it was actually uh, thoroughly satisfying. But because of God's calling to the man to cultivate and keep the garden, right? I, I believe he has a sense of God's pleasure when he's in battle, when he's engaged in work. We have, men have a sense of God's pleasure in that. Um, whether the battle is actual battle, whether it's common projects, whether it's political fights, um, whether it's the, the work of the church. Um, but one thing that men will not abide is being called gay if they long for the companionship and camaraderie of men. They would rather not have even that which they long for if it's going to be called a perversion. Right? So we find ourselves in a, in a difficult situation. Be a soft man and have affection and accolades of a world gone mad or be a hard man and receive the world's scorn. Be a soft man and surround yourself with women only 
or be a hard man and offend your grandmother. Right? Women, um, women, do you understand the masculine impulse of your husbands? Do you understand this? That there is a need for this? That God has implanted in the man this, this command to cultivate and keep the garden? Do you never let... Um, do you never let your man out of your sight or at least out of the reach of a text? Right? Do you always have to know where he is and what he's engaged in so that you can judge him for it? Or you can help him discern whether or not he is pleasing you? Mothers, do you recognize the, the masculine impulse of your boys? Um, are you killing it or are you honing it? That's the question. Many mothers want to kill the masculine impulse of their boys, right? To make them soft men, to make them, um, to make them girls. Um, but it needs to not be killed. It needs to be honed, right? It needs to be disciplined so that it's useful, that it's productive. You know, don't give, certainly don't give up the spanking of your boys. That would make them soft men. Um, but don't make your sons soft. Make them men who know how to honor the weak. Right? Make them strong, but, but then those who know how to honor the weak and to honor women and to honor those who need their protection. That's what we need to do for them. Um, think of the men of the church. Um, the closest I've come... Uh, to real, to real masculine camaraderie is in church office. That's where I've I've come closest to it. The elders of the church have entered into battle together against all the forces of evil. It seems at times, and um, you know, and so I I've seen that I've seen that camaraderie. I've seen that love. I've seen that. Uh, these relationships with men develop as we have the common work of the church together. And it's, it's beautiful. It's glorious. Um, the um, personhood South Carolina for me has, has become this. The men that I work with on personhood South Carolina, we pray together. We, we, don't just, we don't just talk about legislation. We're praying together. We're talking together. We become friends. Um, you know, and so uh, this this is these are precious gifts. These are precious and uncommon gifts. Unfortunately, today, the camaraderie of men. If I could do anything in this church with with uh, I think the most lasting impact, it would be for the men to have this kind of camaraderie. The men to have this sense that we are we are. Uh, together working for the kingdom of God on earth and, and blessing those under our authority. Um, will we allow our boys, our husbands, the men of the church to enter into spiritual battle, battles beyond the home? That's another question. We, we have battles at home. All fathers and mothers have these spiritual battles. But will we allow husbands, fathers, and to enter into battle beyond the home. It is needed. 
It is needed, isn't it? It is needed especially today in a culture that, that is more and more putting women on the front lines of every sort of battle, not just military battles, but corporate battles, um, political battles. Uh, and so I, I think it's a testimony to God, to his scripture, and to, and, um, and to his creation order. Uh, that we shoot for these things. Now, Jonathan and David, this is a friendship. When you come to this passage, read it as a friendship. It's more than a friendship. They also have the kingdom to maintain. They're working together for this. And that's where verse 4 comes in. Jonathan stripped himself, not because he wanted to seduce David. That's perverse. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt, in order to announce his transfer, his relinquishing of any right to the throne. He's giving that to David now. And this is Saul's son. Don't forget that. He could have claimed his rights to the throne. He could have caused a coup in all of Israel. But he says, no, I'm going to defer to... I mean, what a godly man. What a godly man to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to transfer my power. I'm going to make it obvious to everyone that I have no claim to the throne. It is David's now. And so um, this is formally designating David as Jonathan's replacement. You are my replacement. Take, my, take the symbols of my authority, my robe and my sword. Okay? Um, these... These are the, this is the crown prince giving them to David. Uh, think of this too, in, in battle like this, this is a battle for the kingdom. This is a battle against Saul who's, who's, who is evil. Um, in battle, petal, petty rivalry ends as, as the reality of the situation takes grip. Jonathan sets aside, I mean, he could have had a petty rivalry with David, but he sets it aside in order to get to work. Right? He sets aside the petty rivalry. David had proven, proven himself. Right? He had slayed the giant. He had proven himself. He, his loyalty to God was proven through the slaying of Goliath. And Jonathan is no petty man who's going to cling to his right just because of blood. He's not going to do that when God has made it so obvious through the anointing of Samuel, through the slaying of Goliath, that David is the man. Um, Remember earlier, remember earlier that David was, uh, Saul attempted to give David something. Saul attempted to give David his armor and his sword, and David rejects it, right? I take that as he doesn't want to be a king like Saul. Right? He doesn't want to be a king like the nations, which is what they got in Saul. And he rejects that, but here he receives Jonathan's sword and robe and saying, as a successor to Saul. He accepts Jonathan's armor. He, reject, he refuses Saul's armor. And so that's what's going on in this passage. It's two men who are committed to one another and who are committed to the work of the kingdom and glorifying God. And that makes them love one another deeply, right? That makes them love one another deeply. And 
to the point where David can say when Jonathan dies that his love was better than the love of a woman. Love was better than the love of a woman. And there is no sexual component to that at all. It's friendship. It's camaraderie. And it's combined effort. In verse 6, after all this goes on and David has killed the Philistine, the women, women come out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Notice that this song is sung to King Saul. Right? It's not sung to David. Right? They come out, they sing to Saul and say, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And whether or not, I mean, it, it seems like they would have known that that is going to provoke Saul. They can't be that ignorant, but certainly that is what it amounts to. Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him, the scripture says. Of course it displeased him because he was a man not set on the glory of God. He was a man set on his own glory. So, so keeping a tally of, of the, the slain was really important to him. David could probably care less. He wanted God's name to be glorified. He didn't want to keep a tally of how many slayings, how many good deeds he had done. But Saul keeps track of such petty things. Um, Saul became very angry for the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? He's got the kingdom, Saul. He's got the kingdom. Samuel has already told you this. And so here is Saul clinging, clinging to the kingdom, though even God has told him no. God has told him no. He clings to it, even to the point now where the next few chapters are Saul pursuing David to kill him. Right? And the next scene is that. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. He could not trust him. Notice, notice what it says in verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Loved David. So the affections of the people have tra- transferred to David. There's a love for David now as he goes out and comes in before them. And that is just a way of saying as he d- goes out to battle and comes in victorious. Right? He's going out and coming in before them. So all Israel and Judah love David. King Saul does not love David. King Saul does not love David anymore. This lack of love is setting up what comes down the road a bit. David's, um, David's respect of Saul though, um, Saul, though Saul is bloodthirsty toward him. Look at, look at what it says about Saul. Verse 8, Saul is angry. Verse um, and he is jealous. Verse 9, Saul does not trust David. Verse 10, an evil spirit is mightily coming upon him. Verse 10, he's raving. Verse 11, he attempts murder two times. Paul, or, uh, David flees from him, it says, his, from his presence twice. Um, verse 12, it says that he's afraid of David. Verse 13 says that he puts David into battle so that David will die, essentially. He's putting him in. You know, if I can't contend with him, let the Philistines contend with him. So he's putting him in to die. And then uh, verse 15 says that Saul dreaded David. And then verse 17 says he's he's basically, um, he's trying to bribe David with his, 
his daughter. Right? He's now bribing him with a daughter. Here's my older daughter, daughter Meribah. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. Right? And so he says that's when, that's when the Philistines will be against him. And so think of all of that. Think of all those things that said about Saul, and that is the man that David feels obligated still to serve. That's the man that he has to serve. He's angry, jealous, does not trust him. He's filled with a demon. He's raving. He attempts to kill him. He's afraid of David. He puts him into battle. He's using bribery with his own daughter, and he dreads him. And David still feels obligated to serve him in his position. One of the commentaries I'm reading said David had to discover a way of faithfully serving a man, an anointed man, who was his master, and at the same time avoid and deflect the hostility of the same man, a demon-possessed man, who was trying to kill him. So he's got to show him honor, and, and yet, I mean, the, the whole backdrop is one where he knows that Saul's been rejected and he's been anointed. But what would David do in the coming chapters? He would do nothing to harm Saul. He did not return evil for evil. He honored, or he continued serving his enemy. He honored, he honored God's anointed. Even at times he avoids Saul just so he doesn't have to do anything terrible to him. He just avoids him. Um, avoids open hostility with him. And so this is nothing less than the mind of Christ. This is loving your enemy. That is what David is showing us in his relationship to Saul. He's loving his enemy. Um, and you know, you know, perhaps that is another thing that, that relational women can't under, figure out about men. How men can love their enemies. How men can argue and fight and then get on with it. Right? Can, can fist fight even. How many men have gotten in fist fights and then got up and, and laughed at each other about it? And, and, and laugh about it and, and go have a, a drink together? Um, perhaps that is a part of masculinity. But it is undoubtedly godliness. This ability to love your enemy. This ability of David. And it expresses part of David's having a heart as God's. Right? Just as Christ. The godly man can love his enemies because he, know, he knows what? God will eventually vindicate him. We can love our enemies because God is going to eventually make all, all justice come to play in every situation. Uh, remember what Jesus said upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They're killing him. They're mocking him. They're spitting upon him. They're doing everything that Saul is doing to David, right? And David reacts in the same way as Jesus. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, Jesus, they know what they're doing. They're killing you. You know, come down from the cross and dash them to pieces. No. Jesus prays to his Father, Father, forgive them. He dies, but then what happens? He's vindicated when he rises from the dead. That is Jesus' vindication against those who were mocking him. He died, but he didn't die. 
they could nail him to the cross, but they had no power over him. And so part of this we should learn is will we always be about vindicating ourselves or will we wait on the better vindication of the Lord? Wait on the better vindication of the Lord that we see here. Um, Love your enemies. And perhaps some will come to repentance through that example. Right? Perhaps some will even come to repentance. So that's what I draw out of this passage. Um, The first part of this is very important. I pray that God gives the men of this church, also the women, but particularly the men of the church, this Uh, this necessary camaraderie, this willingness to love one another tenderly and then get to work dying for the weak, get to work um, together. And I pray that we would feel no shame, no shame in the friendships that the men have in this church, even and especially when they are better than the love of women. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the love that you gave Jonathan and David, the love you gave for, uh, that they had for one another. Father, we know it's of your spirit. And we thank you for Jonathan's humility, that he would give, give the kingdom over to David and then seek to protect him, even against his own, his own father. Father, I I thank you for the way that Jesus has taught us to love our enemies, has taught us to, and and shown us this this love for men, the love that his apostles had for him and he had for his apostles. I think of the scene when they have breakfast in the latter latter chapter of, of John, and they just eat together. What joy they must have had in being restored to their Savior, and simply having time with Him. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen the uh, love we have for one another, that our women would have deep friendships in the church, that would glorify You, and Father, that would be better than the love of men. Father, and I pray that, that the men would have relationships that glorify You, that we would truly be concerned for one another, that, that our our thoughts would often turn to our brothers and we would wonder what they are up to and wonder how we can pray for them and and care for them and that we would long to be together. Father, I pray that you would bless this church with those kinds of friendships. And Father, we we ask that, that we would always wait upon your vindication. Give us the mind of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.